here, and um, the passage we're going to look at today uh, is from Colossians chapter 3. So if you're sort of an EU regular and you bring along a Bible, now is the good time to get it out. If you, don't, if you don't have a Bible and would like to read one, then uh, go and see our information table at the end. And uh, one of the people there will give you a Bible. That's right, isn't it? Public meetings team. You've got some Bibles to give away? Absolutely. Someone's shouting very loudly. Um, I don't know... This lecture theatre, you know, this is one of the older lecture theatres on campus. and It's one of the sort of the uh, less congenial for conversation because they put this whopping great big bit of timber in the way. That's a, it's a really nice desk, but I tell you what, it sort of creates this big barrier between whoever's up the front and whoever's out there. I could stand in there, but that would be really weird for the people that have chosen to sit in the front, and I will feel a bit claustrophobic, because I sort of... I'm not going to stand on top of that. That's an OH&S riff, you see. I know Rowan's done it before, and uh, uh, so I'm just going to sort of wander back and forth behind this desk, I think, if that's okay. Uh, I don't know, um, can I echo Megan's welcome that if you're sort of new to the EU this year, then can I give you a very warm welcome? Uh, there are some people here who have been around the EU for many years. Uh, there are some people here for whom this may be your first time at an EU thing. Uh, some of you are in first year and you've only been coming for the first couple of weeks. Show of hands, who's in first year? Uh, show of hands, who's not in first year? Now, can I say, Wednesday public meetings is one of the best public meetings to come to, partly because it's in the most traditional lecture theatres. But uh, you guys, in terms of seniors, you're the best represented out of all the public meetings. Okay? I asked the same thing on Tuesday. Stacks of first years, like twice as many. And there was just this sort of little vague show of arms from all the seniors. So maybe that's where you guys have all decided to come. But there's a whole mix of people here in the room. So if this is your first time at EU or if you've just joined us in first year, then I want to say a very warm welcome to you. Uh, how are you settling in? I know for some of the seniors, they're sort of a bit disappointed they can't be on holidays anymore. Although, for some of you, it just seems like a holiday, but you've just got to do some work at the same time. For some of the first years, you guys are enjoying the great freedoms of not having to be at school and life is not controlled by the bell or the buzzer or whatever that annoying noise was that went off every 46 and a half minutes. Um, I know of no school where the bell actually rings on the hour. And it never rings on the same time on the same day because they work on 21 rolling three-week bizarre things anyway. <laughs> so you're in this moment of great freedom and you've got this opportunity to now try and work out what life is going to be like for you. And so if you're in first year, then can I encourage you to make the most of those opportunities? Uh, if you're a Christian, then try and work out what it means to live as a Christian and consider the claims of Jesus as an adult. How will it impact your life? And this is one of the things we're going to be looking at today when we turn to this passage in Colossians. You might be here as a first year or as a senior. The whole Christian thing is a bit new for you because you've never really heard about it. You remember some vague bloke rabbiting on about it at chapel at school, but you weren't really interested then. And um, Maybe you've been sort of trying to run away from God. Uh, if you've been trying to run away from God, then can I just sort of half-heartedly say you haven't done a good job because uh, you've ended up here at an EU public meeting and we're going to talk about God for the next half an hour or so. Uh, so I don't know your situation, but whatever the case, can I encourage you to check out the claims of Jesus as an adult? Uh, each of us comes with different experiences. So when I arrived at university, uh, I was a Christian. I'd been raised in a Christian family. I attended a church where there was about 20 to 25 people on the, in the evening church. That was my experience of Christianity. Uh, uh, if I had been asked at school, I would have said I was a Christian, but I didn't really go to the Christian group at school because it was really daggy. And uh, I didn't want to be called a dag at school. I wanted to fit in with what I thought were the cool kids. But then I wasn't in first rugby. I didn't do rowing. I uh, didn't really play cricket that well, 
And so you can see that I really didn't fit in with the cool kids at all. You see? Uh, when I arrived at university, um, I was told that I really should check out the, camp, the Christian group on campus. So because I was enrolled at New South Wales University, and what a fine institution it is, might I say. <laughs> okay, Sydney Uni is a much aesthetically more pleasing place. I know that sentence doesn't make sense, but I studied science. So you walk around Sydney Uni, it's the place where everything's beautiful. The buildings are nice, the sandstone buildings are wonderful, the people just look more beautiful, don't they? Okay, you've had your ego massages a bit now, okay, feeling happy? Uh, I turned up at New South Wales Uni, I went to campus Bible study, and uh, because my experience of Christianity was sort of small and familiar, uh, I was a bit surprised when on the flyer that I'd been given, it said, campus Bible study is in Matthews A Lecture Theatre. That would be like running an EU public meeting in Eastern Avenue, the biggest lecture theatre on campus. And I'd had a maths class in there earlier that day and thought that just has to be wrong. Either that or there'll be a group of about 30 people sitting sort of in the front three rows. So I, like any first year, walked all the way around the building looking for another Matthews A because surely it can't be the biggest one. Uh, And in the end I went, I sat right at the back. I came in the back door, I sat at the back um, at five to one. I was there early, by the way, like most first years, I sort of ran between class. Um, (laughs) Oh, look, we all laugh, but you've all done it, okay? (laughs) And if you're in first year, you've realised now you don't have to run to class because you've got more than enough time. And if you get there a little bit late, then that's okay. I sat right at the back. Um, all these people started coming in and filling up the lecture theatre and I was ready to leave because I thought it was either a psych lecture or a maths lecture or something like that. Anyway, the guy at the front gets up and says, welcome to campus Bible study. And no one left. There's 550 people in the room. Now, at that point, I couldn't leave, you see, because I'd be the odd one out. I'd, you know, People would know that I was leaving for some reason. And I just sat there. I was amazed that someone then got up and taught the Bible for 40, 45 minutes. That experience of being a Christian in university just absolutely blew me away. I went back next week. I sat in the same spot. And I did that for the first couple of weeks until someone noticed that I'd been there and they came up and spoke to me. Now, if you're in first year and you've been sitting in the same spot for the last two or three weeks and someone has not said hello to you, then we're going to deal with this issue right now. I want you all to turn to the person next to you on either side of you and say hello. Go on, do it. Okay, that's it. All you had to do was say hello. And so now you feel, oh, look, we're not saying hello to everybody. And so now you feel, so my experience, my experience of turning up at uni was one where I was a little bit, un, I was a bit uncertain, not quite sure how I was going to fit in. I knew, I thought what it meant to be a Christian on campus. I had some sort of preconceived ideas about what that was going to be like. But turning up at university meant, for me, life was not turned upside down necessarily, but I had to rethink some things. And so one of the things that we want to try and encourage you to do by being part of the EU, and this is a reminder for seniors, because remember, you've been on holidays for about six months. Oh, sorry, three months. I know it seems like a long time. The first couple of weeks are just about finding our feet again, getting back into the routine that is university, turning up regularly to public meetings, being part of a small group where you can read the Bible with other Christians, And check out the claims of Jesus for yourself, particularly if you're not a Christian. Our small groups are open to anyone who wants to find out what it means to be a Christian. And one of the things we do, particularly at EU public meetings, is we take the word of God seriously. We read it. We wrestle with it. We try and work out what it's saying. Because when we open the word of God, the Bible, it's not as if God is speaking to us. We believe that it is God speaking to us, which is why we do well to work hard at it, to stretch ourselves in our Christian understanding. 
Because you're here for three, four or five years and you'll be stretched in a particular field of understanding, whatever it's going to be, to become more than proficient in that area so that you can then go and serve that profession well for the rest of your life. Why would you not do the same, if not more, with your understanding of the God of the universe and the fact that you call yourself a Christian? So I want to encourage you, if you're in first year or if you're coming back for second or third year or fourth or fifth year, to work hard at this. And I'm going to pray now that as we turn to the text of Colossians 3, that that's one of the things that God helps us do. So will you pray with me? Father God in heaven, we give you great thanks that we are privileged to be able to study at university. We thank you for the opportunity that we have in this country to be able to meet publicly and to open your word together. We ask, please, that now as we read it, that we would hear you speak to us and that through the work of your spirit in our life, you would enable us to change, that we would live according to it. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, You're well suited by following the outline. I know it only has four points, but they're the only four points I'm going to try and make between now and about 10 to 2. Uh, The four things that we're looking at today come under this broad heading of what does it mean to know God, a life lived differently? Uh, One of the things we've been looking at, particularly over the last three weeks at the EU, from our outdoor public meetings to last week, is what does it mean to know God? We started fairly broadly with the idea of knowledge and what does it do for us. We looked at this idea that God actually can be known. He's not remained hidden. That was all week one. Last week, when Rowan was looking at some of the issues about how we see God revealed to us in the person of Jesus, we saw that the cross is one of the key things that shows us who God is, one of the key ways that we see who God is. Today, we're going to look at what does it mean to know God and how does this change our life. I've got four key points I want to make. And the first one is that knowledge changes everything. Now, our text this, for this afternoon is Colossians. Oh, I missed it. What a shame. <laughs> Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Uh, I'm going to put it on three different screens, but uh, this is not an excuse to not bring your Bibles along to public meetings. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, this is the NIV version that I'm using. Uh, here in Colossians chapter 3... Paul starts to describe what a changed life will look like. And so let's read the text. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's some pretty heavy stuff going on in those four verses. Let's try and unpack it and see what Paul is talking about. Uh, One of the key things that we've been suggesting is that actually as we come to a knowledge of who God is and the way in which he works in the world, this acknowledgement actually has implications for the way that we will live. It should rightly change our attitude, our way of thinking, our mindset. It should change the way that we engage emotionally with others. And it should change the way in which we act in the world now. See, here, Paul is claiming that those who call themselves Christians have been included in Christ. That in the same way that Christ was raised from the dead and is now in the heavenly realms, others, Christians, have also been included in Christ, which means they share in something of what Christ now has. Now, Paul doesn't go into a lot of detail about what that is, but the point is well made. See, Paul's challenge is that knowing what we know changes the way we live. 
And we're going to look at that as we work through the next verses uh, up to the end of chapter 15. But here, the Bible tells us that actually our hearts are to be set on things above, not on earthly things. They're to be set, I take it, on things that are in the heavenly realms, not necessarily the things that are of day-to-day significance. Now, what could some of those things be? And at this point, we wish we had another couple of chapters, if not another couple of hundred chapters. Tell us more. Tell us what that's like. I take it that Paul hasn't gone there, and so we've got to work with what we've got. Which in this case, I think, is that one of the things that we're shown is that perhaps a reflection on what does it mean to consider the things of the heavenlies is, well, I take it it's to consider the character and nature of God. For that's where God is. He dwells in the heavenlies. And now the Lord Jesus has been raised and is now seated with him. So our attitude, our mindset should be that we consider the things that God considers rather than the things that would distract us from that consideration here on earth. Considering and dwelling on the character of God and who he is like, his intent for the world, the way in which he works and acts in the world, is a consideration of what is going on in the heavenlies where the Lord Jesus Christ is now seated at the right hand of God and is now ruling. Now, the rulership of the Lord Jesus is present and is unambiguous in many respects. We know that from the rest of the Bible. But the reality is we don't see it yet fully revealed, do we? For our experience of the world is that all is not right with the world. And so what is Paul asking us to do here? Is he asking us to continually dwell on the things that are not right with the world? Or is he asking us to dwell on those heavenly things? I take it in this case, this is what Paul is asking for. See, we've seen over the last couple of weeks that Jesus redeems us from a particular way of life. And Paul goes on to talk about that, which we'll deal with when it looks at the challenge of a different life and the shape of a changed life. So the question I want to pose to you is this. Consider your life. Consider what occupies your thinking. Consider how you feel your week. Do these verses reflect your thinking? Now, you may be sitting there and saying, well, look, this whole Christian thing, this is all fairly new to me. Uh, No, it doesn't. And that's entirely understandable. But if you're a Christian, if you claim the name of Jesus, if you consider that you've been raised with Christ, then this is the challenge for us. This is what should be filling our minds. Now, what I think Paul is not saying is that all you must think about is the heavenly things. As if the things on earth are of absolutely no consideration at all. We know elsewhere that we need to live in the world, that we need to live well in the world. I think what Paul's saying here is establish a right priority. Now, we do this in life. You establish priorities all the time. You've made it a priority to come to the EU public meeting. Others have chosen not to. Otherwise, there'd be 42,000 people squashed into this lecture theatre. But in some senses, you've made some conscious decision that actually this hour is well spent in this lecture theatre. It doesn't mean to say that you have to spend every hour while you're at university in an EU public meeting or doing EU things. But what consideration will you give to God in your life? How have you done so in the past? And perhaps how will that be challenged and how will it change going forward this year? See, the challenge is that we live life differently. 
And one of the things that we need to consider is the way in which we live. How is it that we're treated by others? Do they consider us? Do, we, do they know that we exist, sort of in relationship? Do they set aside time for us? Do they care for us when we're grieving? Are they genuinely interested in us and our cares and concerns? Are they interested in sharing our joys and the wins that we have in life? Are they there for us in the hard times? In the really tough times? In the times when we're grieving? And the times when we'd really like someone to be intimate and share with us? For some of us, I think we can genuinely answer yes to that question. I suspect some of us will have maybe one or two friends who are like that. But surely as we look out on the world and as we reflect on the way in which we treat other people, that there may be one or two for whom we would do the same thing. But do you do this with everybody? As you observe the world, do you see everybody relating to each other like this? I think our experience and our shared experience of the world is that we struggle in relationships. We don't always live rightly with other people. That's our own experience. That's the way we've treated others in the past. That's the way we get treated. And you've only got to turn on the news to see that's the way others treat other people. See, in many respects, this is describing our identity. It describes who we are. It shows us that actually we're, we're not quite as perfect as we perhaps could be or as perhaps we'd like to be. It actually shows us that our identity is one which is a bit marred. It's, it's a bit damaged. And I think it's okay to say that. We don't like to say it. We're at the premier university in the country with the nicest buildings, with the best-looking people. That's true, isn't it? Absolutely. But you're a bit marred and damaged. No, not us. Maybe at other institutions, like one over at Kensington, they'd be marred and damaged. Do you see how we create often identities for ourselves that are just not quite consistent with reality? And I think we do it because sometimes we're a little bit afraid about what other people will genuinely think about us. Oh, you're really like that. Oh, maybe we shouldn't spend as much time together. We don't want people to know that, do we? But the reality is that we're all a little bit broken in some way. Now, the Bible describes that as sin. And it comes from certain consequences. And that is that ultimately it's because we don't treat God the way that we should. And this is shown in the way in which we relate to other people. See, the new identity that Jesus offers of being raised in him gives us the opportunity to now lead a new life. But there are some challenges. And see here some of the challenges that Paul describes when he talks about it here in verse 5. Now, this is what he says. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. 
Here there is no Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. See, if the Christian is someone who wants to claim that they've been raised with Christ and are somehow included in Christ and are meant to dwell on the things that are in the heavenlies, then what's the challenge? Surely if I'm going to be a Christian, I just have to hang out with other Christians and life's going to be all okay. No, actually, I think the reason why Paul writes this particular part of the Bible for us is actually he's keen to make sure that though we have been raised with Christ, though we have a new self, there are parts of our old self that it will be tempting to go back to. And so Paul then here in the Bible describes some of the things that he wants his hearers to flee from. But it's a bit more than fleeing, isn't it? Notice how he starts in verse 12, uh, verse 5. Just put them away for a time being. Is that what he says? Only go there once a week instead of three times a week. No, no, the language is very strong. Put to death. I take it the comparison is being made to the previous four verses where he's comparing the death of Jesus and his now new resurrected body being placed in the heavenlies that Paul now says, therefore, do the same thing to your old way of life. Put it to death, not just push it to one side. Deal with it in the same way that death deals with the human body. Finally, completely. This, friends, is no easy thing to do. And that's why I take it it's a challenge to live a different life. See, Paul, he describes three particular areas. He talks about sexual behaviour, he talks about evil desires, and he talks about greed. Oh, sorry, speech. I think um, we don't have a lot of time to go into these. Let me just give a brief summary. I think for many people in our world, sexual intimacy is held up as an ideal. Now, the Bible recognises that we're all sexual beings. But what it doesn't necessarily advocate, in fact, it doesn't advocate it, not necessarily, what it doesn't advocate is that your sexuality is something to be used in whatever way you see fit. So the Bible says that despite the fact that we're sexual beings, there are some limits placed around its use. And we're given some ways in which it is to be used well. Sexual intimacy is actually an expression of serving other people rather than self-gratification. And so what was a very good thing suddenly becomes something that actually starts to damage us. And so I say, consider your life. How do you behave sexually? Is it a way which honours God and the way in which he intended your sexuality to be used? Or perhaps you're using it in a way which is actually purely self-seeking. In which case, heed the warning and hear the command of the text which says, put that way of using your sexuality to death. What it's not saying is be asexual, no longer be a sexual being. No, no, because other parts of Scripture encourage that, but encourage it to be expressed in a right way. Now, the second one is evil desires, which we don't really have much time to go into. But the third one is speech. Let me say something here. I think one of the dangers we've got here is what you might call the slippery slope of culture. The words that are sort of now common in the vernacular are still sort of not really liked by previous generations. I don't have time to go into all these particular words, but if you turn on the TV at 7.30, the language that is now used in a lot of shows at 7.30 was once restricted to the 9.30 time slot. 
I know that because I've been around university for a while. Okay, I'm a little bit older than you guys. Your parents would appreciate this change. So when Paul here writes, uh, uh, now you must rid yourself of all such things of these in verse 8, particularly the filthy language from your lips, what standard or measure do we have to know whether or not we're doing the right thing? Can I encourage you to be careful of picking a standard that is purely based on culture? Because you don't have to go too far to see that culture actually changes. I think in this particular case, what Paul has on view is speech that damages other people, that seeks, intentionally or otherwise, harm to their identity, their confidence, their security. Which is why he says, get rid of all these things. Anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language. It's a pattern of speech which actually does harm to other people. Now, as you read through these verses, this may be a way in which you're living. In which case, I think you can see very clearly that you're at odds with the way in which God would want you to be living. So I want you to consider your life. Is this an area of life that you think is worth changing? Because if the claim of the Bible is right and true, that God expects something more for your life and that your life will actually be lived in a better fashion, is that not something worth considering? So what does the shape of the changed life look like? I take it that the shape of the changed life looks like partly revolves around verse 10. Oops, better go back, verse 10. Yeah. Got it. That's what verse 10 says. Uh, Having put on, well, verse 9, uh, the last part of verse 9, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator... See, the shape of the changed life actually comes about first and foremost by a work of God in your life, by raising you with Christ and seating you in the heavenlies. And having put on that new self, the way in which you now live is actually, I think, driven by a knowledge of what God is doing. See, how would you like to change your bad habits? Now, we've all got bad habits. We can sort of do a bit of a survey and see whose habit is worst, but we're not going to go there. Um, apparently somewhere between 10 and 45% of New Year's resolutions never get through to completion. Thanks to the wonders of internet and the great wealth of information there, instead of just getting one answer, you now get 10,000 answers that you've now got to try and sift through to work out how many New Year's resolutions actually get kept. See, we're good at making promises, just generally, but we're not as good at actually delivering on them, are we? So how is it that you change the way in which you live? Now, it may be that you had a class at 9 o'clock this morning and you've never really made it to that class and you're a bit nervous now because it's week three and you're thinking, look, if that's the habit I'm in, I hate to see what time I'm going to get to campus by about week four or week eight or week... So what habit are you going to break to try and get to class at 9 o'clock? Now, at this point, I know I'm sort of prejudicing those who assume that you actually have to come to class at 9 (laughs) o'clock. What will you do? Would you make a resolution, put on a big bit of paper, stick it on your desk, wake up earlier on Wednesday morning, get to class at nine, in the hope that every time you see it, it will sort of just burn itself into your brain and your body will just wake itself up at whatever time you need to get up this morning. And Maybe you'll go to a course, a self-motivation course, to really get pumped up and it would involve jumping up on desks and running around and shouting and for the blokes feeling very manly and... Is that the way you're going to actually change an unfortunate habit? Or maybe you'll just try a lot harder. 
How is it that the Christian tries to live in accordance with the way God would want them to have? I take it here, verse 10 is the key. Verse 10 is the key because it talks us about, talks to us about the fact that we often don't live well, but that actually our life can be changed and renewed and will continue to improve as we dwell on the knowledge of God. So what does the changed life look like? Well, here in verses 12 to 17, and as I said, I would finish at 10 to, I'm not going to have time to read these verses, but let me just say that verses 12 to 17, the changed life has two significant dimensions. Firstly, at an individual level, and secondly, a life lived with others. See, at the individual level, Paul talks about the way in which the life would actually look differently, particularly there in verse 12. It's some of the way in which the life is described. Is this not an ideal that you would want to aspire to? But notice the key things that the individual life now looks like. It's manifested by forgiveness, by love, by peace, by thankfulness. How intrinsically our society wants these things. But we know from our own experience, both personally and corporately as a humanity, we don't always get there. It is unfair to say that humanity is never thankful or is never forgiving or is never loving or is never at peace. Because I can always find one example of someone who has fulfilled those things. But generally speaking, do you think this describes most of humanity? But this is the ideal that we're heading towards as part of the changed life. But notice the second dimension, and the second dimension is that a changed life is a life lived with others. It's a life which has a corporate dimension to it. So you see there in verse 12 where it's described as God's chosen people, not God's chosen person. You see it again down in verse 15 where it talks about their halfway through since as members of one body. The group of Christians is often described in the New Testament as a body with many parts. As a Christian, you are part of that body, and so you live not only an individual existence, but you actually live a corporate existence. Notice some of the expectations of living corporately, that your behavior is actually directed towards other people. Life is now an other person-centered life, not a self-centered life. You've only got to go back and reflect on some of the things we looked at under the challenge of a different life in verses 5 following to see the comparison that is being made. The thing we do well to remind ourselves of here in this particular section is that all this comes about first and foremost because of the work that God does in raising us with Christ. The fact that we can do these things only comes about as a result of the work that God does in us. And so I finish with this challenge. Is it actually worth knowing God? Why is all of this so good? I want to suggest that humanity has been created for relationships. We know this in our own experience. We know it in the experience of others. The new self that Christianity offers actually achieves God's intent for us. And in doing so, we're actually enabled to live in a way in which God would have us live. It doesn't mean we will live perfectly. It doesn't mean every single waking moment will be something that offers God. But that is why God has determined in his character that he is a God of love. He is a God who forgives. That first and foremost, no matter how bad your life has been up until now, God is happy to forgive those sins because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
Earlier on in the passage, we see that these particular behaviours, back in chapter 3, verse uh, 4, we see that the wrath of God is actually coming. Sorry, verse 6. So back in verse 6, we know that God is coming to deal with the way in which we relate when we relate badly to one another. And yet, what we see is that this thing that we call the new self is actually a good thing. Because the way in which we live is consistent with how God would have us live. But it also shows us that the Christian life is then not driven by legalism. It's not driven by following a set of rules. It's not driven just by purely pragmatics. It's actually driven by this overwhelming value of love. And you see this here in verse 14. And what are the outcomes? Peace, unity, thankfulness. And why? Because it's God-initiated. It continues to change our character as we continue to know God and who he is. It's a right way of living, both personally and corporately. Now, that's a big claim for the Bible to make, that this is the right way to live. And the other ways of living actually bring about, ultimately, the judgment of God. So if you're someone who's here who's a Christian and you've struggled with the way in which you've lived, I want to say, heed the warning from these verses. Ask God to forgive you for your way of life if it's not acting consistently with him, that he would continue to help you live a life which is worthy of God. And how do you do it? Grow in your knowledge and understanding of him. Now, if you're not a Christian, then actually the claim is that your life is not being lived rightly. And for some of you, you will find that very offensive. I want to say I hope the manner in which we talk about these things is not one which brings offence but that actually you would be directed towards the content and the claim that is being made. And that that would be the thing which frames and focuses your discussion. Is it worth knowing God? I think it is because of the goodness of the new self, that it actually demands a response because there is some urgency to it, because God is coming back again. But finally, consider what it will cost you. What will it cost you? particularly if you're not a Christian, then it will actually cost you because you will need to change the way you're living. Are you prepared to do that? But look at the value of it. Living rightly. Living the way you were created to live. Living well with other people. Consider the cost and count the cost before making a decision, for it's not one to be entered into lightly. I'm going to pray. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father God, we give you thanks for uh, this particular passage and we thank you for speaking to us today. We ask, please, that you would help us to continually recognise what you've done for us in the person of Jesus. We ask, please, that you would help us to live the way you intended us to live. For those of us in the room who may not be uh, Christians and have not yet accepted you, We ask, please, that you would give us opportunity to consider the claims that are being made. For those of us that claim the name of Jesus, we ask, please, that you would help us through your Holy Spirit to live lives that bring honour and glory to you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, Can I see again the show?